Okay, so this week I'm going to talk about an anonymous play, Arden of Faversham. Last week when I was talking about kids' blockbuster hit, The Spanish Tragedy, I was trying to establish it as a play that captured the imagination of early modern culture. And this week I'm thinking less of a phenomenally popular play than of a phenomenally popular story. Okay, so the play of Arden of Faversham uh, is just one incarnation of this true crime story, the killing of Thomas Arden of Faversham in Kent by his wife and her associates. It's just one incarnation of this story which flips through all kinds of genres uh, in the Elizabethan uh, and Stuart period. Okay, so if you, um, one of the things I've suggested that you might want to do about this is to look at how the story comes in different places. It gives you a chance to think about all kinds of different genres from tragedy to ballad to historical account. Because the play um, appears in a range of high and low culture publications from Hollinshed's Chronicles. So Hollinshed's Chronicles is a big, serious, weighty historical account that Shakespeare uses for his plays on medieval history, right through to broadside, single-sheet broadside ballads. And I've suggested on your handout that if you want to look at these, do a title search on Ebo for Arden. If you don't know how to use Ebo, uh, just get one of the librarians to show you because it will really help you on paper four. Uh, and it's really easy uh, if you don't know how to do it. So what I'm going to try and think about is why this criminal story, the murder of a husband by his wife, by his adulterous wife, so spoke to early modern culture. And again, I'm not going to assume that you've read it already, but again, I am going to try and encourage you to think you'd like to do so. So Arden of Faversham dates, like the Spanish tragedy, from the period of the late 1580s, uh, some point up until 1592, when it's first published. So it's first published in 1592. It's published anonymously, although there have been attempts to attribute it to Shakespeare, not very convincingly, I think. And a recent, much more recent argument by Brian Vickers in the Times Literary Supplement that it is actually by Kidd. There's no external evidence support to support these or any other authorial attribution, and actually who wrote it doesn't seem to me particularly interesting, but if it is something that interests you, um, you might want to email me and we can discuss how you could follow that up. That the play is named for its protagonist, Arden, in his location of Faversham is interesting. Crucial to Arden's story is his property manoeuvring and his acquisition of land and his acquisition of land around Faversham in Kent. The play begins with Arden's friend Franklin. You probably know from Chaucer that a Franklin is a person who owns land. So Franklin's name uh, is also appropriate in this play, which is very much about who owns what and about property. Franklin tries to cheer him up, cheer Arden up, reminding him that he's just taken over the ownership deeds to the dissolved Abbey of Faversham. So it sets the play very much at the moment of the dissolution of the monasteries. And there's a quite an important Reformation culture about this play uh, that I'm going to talk about. So it's a, a crime, true crime story which happened nearly 50 years previously in 1550 uh, and is being performed uh, in, this, in this form uh, in the 1590s. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get a sense of what it's about. In the play, Arden is miserable because he believes his wife, Alice, is having an affair with a man called Mosby. 
Arden believes they're exchanging love tokens and having secret meetings. Uh, but Franklin tries to reassure him about this, and Alice denies the charge. For some reason, Arden and Franklin decide to go off to London. Alone on stage, Alice tells us she is in love with Mosby. The rest of the play depicts the wavering and fraught relationship between Alice and her lover Mosby as they draw in various other people in a plot to kill Arden. Mosby's sister Sue is one of their associates and through her they're able to pull in all kinds of other people who are in love with her. Uh, Arden's servant Michael, a random painter called Clark, both of whom are promised uh, Sue in marriage if they help with the plot uh, by Mosby. Alice and Mosby also bring in someone called Green, a disgruntled tenant who's been dispossessed by Arden, and a number of hired mercenaries, including the excellently named Shakebag and Black Will. You may remember that the answer to the mystery of Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express was, they all done it. And similarly, in Arden of Faversham, everyone has a grudge against Arden, although uh, in this... Uh, uh, in the, uh, the opposite to um, Agatha Christie in a way, the murder attempts do not go according to plan. There are a number of, at least nine, attempts to kill Arden. And these range from taunting him into a jealous fight, poisoning his broth, trying to attack him in the street, at a fair and on the road to Rochester. And along the way, some ingenious murder attempts are also considered but left out. Clark, the painter, has a nice line in Poisoned Portraits that, quote, whoso look upon the work he draws shall, with the beams that issue from his sight, suck venom to his breast and slay himself. But despite flirting with this idea and establishing, importantly, how the painter manages to paint this picture without himself being poisoned, in case you're wondering, he puts his spectacles on very tight and puts a rhubarb leaf up, up his nose, which is great prophylactic for anything. Uh, Arden and Mosby decide this method is too unreliable. We get a poisoned uh, portrait again um, in, the white, in Webster's play The White Devil. Uh, it's, obviously, it's obviously something, um, I'm not quite sure what, but there's something about looking uh, and looking being poisonous, which is obviously quite appropriate maybe for the theatre. Finally, Arden is murdered playing backgammon in his own house. The murderers are, though, immediately discovered because of their tracks in the snow. Uh, Arden's body reveals its own hiding place anyway by permanently imprinting the grass with its outline. Alice is sent away for execution at Canterbury, and so too all the other plotters who are variously burnt, hanged, murdered, and otherwise dispatched. Last week I talked about a series of murders aestheticised into art, in the play within the play in the Spanish tragedy. In this play, we have a sequence of bungled assassination attempts that take on the quality of farce rather than of moral didacticism. Black Will is knocked out by an apprentice lowering the shutters on his shop just at the moment he's about to kill Arden. It's a comedy slapstick moment. Franklin and Arden are awoken with words I hope echo from last week, what dismal outcry calls me from my rest. Kid's version was, what outcry calls me from my naked bed. So Arden and Franklin are awoken and realise that the house has been left open to let the assassins in, and they lock the doors and, uh, and keep them out. Arden <coughs> finds the poisoned soup not wholesome, and he refuses to eat it. 
Time and again, the plans of the murderers go awry. Arden escapes scot-free, often not even realising the danger he is in. The nearest film analogy I think you can find is that of the Lady Killers, in which a heist gang masquerading as a string quartet uh, plot to kill their landlady, who they think has discovered their plans. They keep setting up near accidents, and she keeps walking through them unscathed, not even noticing that a large rock dropped from an upstairs window has just smashed on the pavement behind her. Uh, it's well worth watching either the Ealing version from 1955 or the Cohen Brothers made a rather better remake from 2004. The Cohen Brothers, ironic, eccentric, attentive to location and ultimately brutal, seem to me the perfect filmmakers to make a movie of Arden of Faversham. And in the absence of any sustained modern performance tradition of the play, looking performance for, for performance analogies, things which are similar in tone uh, or in style, may be our best chance of trying to think how the play could work on its feet. That analogy with the lady killers brings me usefully to the question of morality in the play. Like true crime reporting then and now, the play is caught between voyeuristic fascination with the crimes it reconstructs in such lurid detail for its readers, so caught between voyeuristic fascination on the one hand and on the other, prudish claims to find this behaviour apparent and repulsive. The title page to the first published edition in 1592 seems to give the play a very clear moral charge. The lamentable and true tragedy of Master Arden of Faversham in Kent, who was most wickedly murdered by the means of his disloyal and wanton wife, who for the love she bare to one Mosby hired two desperate ruffians, Black Will and Shakebag, to kill him, wherein is showed the great malice and dissimulation of a wicked woman the unsatiable desire of filthy lust, and the shameful end of all murders. I think that's a really good example of how uh, this is both playing on the idea of a salacious story, filthy lust, um, this story of murder, while at the same time professing to um, abhor the, the sort of moral depravity of it. But this uncompromising moralistic reading of the events of the play on its title page, I don't think is actually borne out by the experience of reading or watching it. Uh, the title page is, is, a, is a sales pitch, it's not a praise it's a way of trying to get people to buy the book rather than um, a, a kind of neutral account of what's in it. Franklin, who is an annoyingly smug figure throughout giving bad and cliched advice, does try to end off the play uh, in a moralistic way, describing it as simple truth needing no further gloss beyond the punishment of the criminals. But like the epilogue to the contemporary play Dr Faustus, however, this analysis of what we've just seen seems woefully and unimaginatively moralistic, and the play itself is different. For a start... Arden is hardly the hero of his own play. Even the title page, in stressing so much Alice's sort of terrible, depraved agency that she kills him, you know, even that long title page seems to displace him a bit from the centre of the action, and that's certainly the experience of the play. Arden's role seems to be to be evasive and passive. He's surrounded by the agency and energy of others perhaps epitomised by the frightening activity of that Nietzschean-sounding villain, Black Will. 
and he never succeeds, he, Arden, never succeeds in gaining our sympathy. A sequence of soliloquies from the other characters, beginning in the first scene with two from Alice herself, where she names her desire for Mosby and states in a wonderful sort of Marlovian moment, love is a god and marriage is but words. Love is a god and marriage is but words. So there are soliloquies from all kinds of characters, including Alice, but none from Arden himself. Mosby has his soliloquy moment. I'll talk more about it in a minute. It ends with his expressing his lack of trust for Alice and stating, "'Tis fearful sleeping in a serpent's bed." A woman who's plotted coolly to murder one husband, probably, Mosby realises, would not draw the line at murdering a second. Even Michael, their servant, has a long speech alone on stage, beginning, conflicting thoughts encampered in my breast awake me with the echo of their strokes. Conflicting thoughts. Which is to say, he is given inner conflict, that moment of revelation, which I tried to suggest last week we could see as the accession into subjectivity or personhood. But Arden is not. So Arden is not made into a central figure, a tragic figure, a tragic hero, we have access to. Rather, he is an absence. He literally, literally absents himself from his own identity of Faversham when he agrees to go to London with Franklin in the play's opening lines, leaving his wife to her frolics while he withdraws into a kind of homosocial city world of business affairs. Not only is Arden never fully present to us in the play, his characterisation toggles bewilderingly between pitiable victim and villain. As a self-made man, Arden in the play, like his historical counterpart, has been ruthless in his business dealings and made many enemies in his acquisition of lands. So-called landlordism, uh, the practice of having landlords uh, trying to make money from their land, was one of the social consequences of the huge redistribution of lands in the middle of the 16th century when the abbeys and monasteries were forced to give up their estates. This flooded the market with probably about a quarter of all the land in England, okay, so probably about a quarter of all the land in England in the middle of the 16th century was owned by monasteries and abbeys, that all in some way trans was transferred, all the ownership of that was transferred, and much of it came onto the open market. And most of it was sold to new men, businessmen, on the make, who would try to get as much as they could from their tenants. Complaints against landlords are rife in this period, from Thomas More's description of England in Book One of Utopia to the criticisms of Shakespeare's Richard II as a landlord rather than a king. Even when Franklin is finishing up the play, even when we might think that the sympathy for the dead Arden was at its height, Franklin can't avoid or resist the recollection of Arden's shady land dealings. Arden lay murdered in that plot of ground which he by force and violence held from Reed. So Arden lay murdered in that plot of ground which he by force and violence held from Reed. The idea that Arden is killed on the land which he holds by force and violence from its rightful uh, owners um, 
suggests that Arden is being punished even at the same time as his murderers are. I think the play is really uncertain about whether Arden is the innocent male victim of female lust, of his wife's uh, attempts to get rid of him so she can be with her lover, or whether he is in some sense to blame for a communal plot against him. Uh, if there's someone who so many people hate and so many people have a grudge against, perhaps he isn't that great a guy after all. And somehow he seems to occupy both of, both of these positions. The man who sort of doesn't really realise that his wife wants to, uh, is having an affair and wants to kill him, and the man whose behaviour means that everybody hates him uh, and would stick the knife in if they could. So in occupying each of these positions simultaneously, uh, Arden's uh, sort of curious character, I think, makes the moral centre of the play very fluid. It's hard, too, to know what explanation to give for his repeated escapes from these assassination attempts. Why is it so difficult to murder Arden? Is it because someone, God, the play, is protecting him from harm? Who is it who throws the shutters down on the would-be assassin's head or prevents the crucifix from falling on him? If we're not clear what to make of Arden, we're also not really clear what to make of Alice. In some ways, she's presented as a woman who is escaping a terrible marriage for a gentler and preferable lover. The historical Alice was 16 when she married the 40-year-old Arden, who was one of her stepfather's associates. So there's one, there's one way in which, uh, like other domestic tragedies, Arden may be showing us, the play Arden may be showing us uh, uh, intolerable, an intolerable marriage for women. Uh, and therefore gaining some sympathy for uh, the central female character. But on the other hand, Alice is also presented as a woman driven by excessive desire into a new relationship which is itself turbulent and insecure. Both Mosby and Alice express the desire to break things off on more than one occasion. Each is persuaded by the other not to. And if you read the play, you'll see that its most characteristic mode is one of vacillation and, and, and switch. Scene after scene sees a character come in vowing to do one thing, then being quite quickly persuaded to a different position or back to a previously held position. And this gives the character's motivations and desires a restless and slightly queasy quality. I want to take scene eight as a representative example. At the end of scene seven, so just before it starts, we have seen Black Will, Shakebag and Michael plotting to murder Arden in London. Then we shift back to Faversham. Mosby enters, complaining to himself that my golden time was when I had no gold. My golden time was when I had no gold. It's interesting that Mosby attributes his troubles to money rather than to sex, although the play, I think the play kind of um, turns them into the same thing. So, my golden time was when I had no gold, says Mosby, though then I wanted, yet I slept secure. And he concludes, as I've said, that he can't trust Alice. In comes Alice herself. She's reading a prayer book, bizarrely, uh, and she does not see Mosby. Rather, she is in some turmoil herself and vows to damn that fire in my breast. So she seems to be vowing to say she's going to have no more to do with Mosby. 
Mosby's own resolve breaks when he sees that she's so upset. But when he approaches her, she rejects him, saying, forget, I pray thee, what has passed betwixt us, and saying she's going back to Arden and going to behave as his honest wife. Okay, says Mosby, if that's the way you want it. I've been bewitched by you, you thou unhallowed hast enchanted me, thou unhallowed hast enchanted me. And he says, now I can see that your golden exterior is really just copper. So that idea, uh, my golden time was when I had no gold. You know, I said that money and sex are kind of the same thing. She, she is likened to gold, which isn't true gold, but actually copper. Uh, go on, uh, get away, he says. I'm too good for you. Alice turns on him and she says, I know you're, I knew you're only interested in my money. But then she wheedles, look on me, Mosby, or I kill myself. Mosby says, no, no, I'm too poor for you. You've already made that quite clear. No, says Alice, I'm really sorry I didn't mean it. You are valued gentle by your worth rather than breeding. Throughout, there's an idea that um, Alice may be of a higher birth than Mosby, but it's not really very clear. Uh, Social status is really important in the play, but it's also really blurry. So Alice says, no, I didn't mean it. You're valued gentle by your worth, not by your breeding. Mosby, then, is won over. I'll forget this quarrel, he says. The lovers kiss and make up. Uh, and into this sort of romantic scene of, of reconciliation between them, in comes one of their associates, Bradshaw, with a letter from London saying the murderers have failed again to kill Arden. So in this emotional switchback, we may feel we see something of the authentic perversity of lovers quarrelling. And there is something quite um, realistic, I think, about um, the way they switch, uh, they kind of switch roles uh, and the way they draw in old um, annoyances with each other in quite a realistic way. But we also see something of the play's own ambivalence to matters of money, to status, birth, questions of old rather than new money, and the play's ambivalence to the central couple and their murderous pact. We sort of want Alice and Mosby to make up here, I think. We want this scene to end up uh, with their reconciliation. And that's one of the difficult ways in which the play encourages us to relate to the central adulterous couple. Although we may also realise that there's a kind of chance to pull back from the brink here uh, if they can choose it. In the course of a few minutes in this scene, each of the lovers has vowed to break off the affair and each of them has been persuaded away from that. And their whole encounter is bracketed by these ongoing attempts to kill Arden. I said that perhaps that that scene gives us a realistic glimpse of lovers arguing in which the grounds of the disagreement keep shifting, old scores and insecurities keep being raked up. One important feature of Arden of Faversham is this kind of domestic detail. Indeed, the play tends to be identified as the first play in a subgenre called domestic tragedy. Domestic tragedies are plays often based on true crime stories taking place in recognisable and usually provincial locations amid a wealth of establishing detail from community structures, household goods, uh, telling the stories of what historians call the middling sort, okay, so not, uh, not, not poor uh, people and not the aristocracy, but something in between. Domestic tragedies often circle round women's infidelity. 
Now, domestic detail is clearly important in Arden, and detailed stage directions suggest the play's unsettling interplay of the mundane and the fatal. Poisoning Arden's soup is a really uh, good example of that. And so too is the scene of Arden's murder. Arden's death is incongruous as he sits playing backgammon. Plotting the death, Black Will explains, let your husband sit upon a stool that I may come behind him cunningly and with a towel pull him to the ground, then stab him till his flesh be as a sieve. Even the simile is a domestic one. It's about kitchen, a kind of kitchen appliance. And afterwards, Susan brings on a pail of water to the stage to try to scrub off his bloodstains from the floor. The perversion of the domestic economy and of ordinary household business seems to be symbolised in this horrifically ordinary action. Uh, she does something you know, completely ordinary, bringing a bucket on and, and cleaning the floor, but what she's doing is trying to get rid of the signs of, of a murder. Domestic tragedies transform tragedy from the courtly settings of the Spanish tragedy and from the high-flown rhetoric of Marlowe's Tamburlaine, and instead establish the ground for tragedy in regular middle-class homes in apparently respectable communities. Of course, for many theories of tragedy, the very phrase domestic tragedy is an oxymoron. So-called de casibus theories of tragedy, de casibus theories, which you're probably uh, conscious of from Troilus and Crusade, maybe. Those de casibus theories are premised on the falls of great men, the doleful falls of infortunate and afflicted princes, as George Putnam put it in his Art of English Poesy of 1589, the doleful falls of infortunate and afflicted princes. The idea that tragedy is what happens to aristocratic figures has been a very long-lived one. As recently as 1949, Arthur Miller, defending his tragedy of a common man in Death of a Salesman's Willie Lohman, the name starts to seem kind of significant uh, in, in that respect, Miller still needed to assert, I believe that the common man is as apt a subject for tragedy in its highest sense as kings were. In some ways, Arthur Miller's opposition between common men and kings may be too blunt to help us understand Arden of Faversham. Many critics of domestic tragedy have evoked early modern systems of analogical belief, analogical belief, to explain the particular charge of these local acts of criminality. In analogical belief, the household was a microcosm of the state, the patriarch's peaceful rule over his wife and servants was a model in miniature for the king's rule over his subjects. The crime of petty treason, so petty treason was a crime on the statute book which, which represented an aggravated form of murder when, for example, a wife murdered her husband or a servant his master was a statement of the particular importance of these analogical models. Petty treason, the crime of a subordinate against a superior, is implicitly allied with high treason, a crime against the monarch. So to murder, for a wife to murder her husband is not just to commit murder, but is to commit a form of treason. The apparently private or domestic sphere of the household, therefore, becomes in miniature the political sphere of government. 
Alice's rebellion against her husband takes on the force of a rebellion against the state. And in this light, some of the language she and Mosby use about overthrowing Arden, taking over Arden's seat, becoming rulers of themselves, that language becomes less metaphorical and more obviously charged with political significance. To us, the family and household uh, look like a private realm where we can escape from state control, hence the particular bogey power of the phrase nanny state, because it suggests uh, an, an improper intrusion of the state into the private space of the home. But I think to the early modern world, state and household were different in scale rather than in kind. Okay, they were not opposite realms, uh, but they were, uh, they were different, different scales of structure. Part of the force of the household in this period is related to cultural changes after the Reformation. Protestant culture seems to have had a larger sense than previously of the household as an extended family, including uh, blood relatives and servants. The historical murder of Arden took place in 1550 right in the turbulent heart of the Reformation. So the dissolution of the monasteries took place, as you know, from about 1536 to 41. The Protestant boy king, Edward, rules from 1547 to 53. In 53, we get the Catholic Queen Mary, and in 1558, uh, the Protestant Queen Elizabeth. So the play responds to this cultural moment in two major ways. And the cultural moment, I suppose I mean, is what it's like to look back from the 1590s on that moment in 1550. The first is, as I've already suggested, uh, a scepticism about the transfer of land from ecclesiastical institutions to private ones. Part of Arden's estate, as we learn right from the beginning, has come to him from the Abbey of Faversham. And in this, he symbolises the new breed of capitalist landowners of post-Reformation England. And as I've already said, questions about the ethical standards of, of, of Arden as a landlord can't be suppressed by the play, even by those characters, such as Franklin, who are most sympathetic to him. But the second way in which the play seems to interrogate the consequences of religious change are in its representation of marriage and the household. For Protestants, the idea of what was called companionate marriage, companionate marriage, suggested an emotional connection between husband and wife and a sense of mutual interdependence. And this was an important modification of Catholic norms in which marriage was already a fallen state and chastity alone had spiritual integrity. Okay, so the thing that... Um, Protestantism's idea of the perfect life is to live a perfect, uh, loyal marriage. Catholicism's idea of the perfect life uh, is to live in a monastery, okay. which is why um, the sound of music is a perfect allegory of the Reformation. Protestant culture responded to these new expectations with a swathe of self-help books about how to run your new household and how to manage your companionate marriage. 
Many of these conduct books are selectively quoted now by historians of conduct in the period to suggest that women's role was to be silent and subservient. But that's actually not really the whole picture. Most marriage advice books felt that there were mutual obligations in marriage. So they will have a list of how women should behave, but there'll be a, uh, an equivalent list of how men should behave. So men should not be violent to their wives, uh, should not be unreasonable in allowing them certain freedoms, that men ought to listen to women's advice and consult their wives on matters of joint importance. This offset uh, the, the, the kind of obedience and obligations the wife held to the husband. Companionate marriage thus attempted to realign marital roles and to advocate a spiritual mutual friendship alongside marriage. And in some ways, the play Ardner Favisham, I think, dramatises the painful breakdown of this kind of mutuality. Arden is first saddened and depressed by his wife's preference for Mosby, rather than angry and punitive. You'll see something different if you look at other domestic tragedies where husbands behave in uh, madly violent uh, ways. Arden uh, never does that. In, instead, he, he kind of uh, withdraws uh, and becomes melancholy. So Arden seems depressed by the failure of his own companion at marriage, and Alice and Mosby discuss their relationship in broadly companionate terms. But just as the play interrogates the consequences of shifting land ownership caused by Reformation ideology, so too it seems to me sceptical about that Protestant notion of companionate marriage, showing us in the Ardens match a marriage already hollowed out, already failed, and for what reasons we never really know. One of the ways Alice recruits another potential murderer of her husband is by saying she is frightened of Arden, who is always cruel to her, and spends his time away from her in London, where he revels it among such filthy ones as counsels him to make away with his wife. It's an absolute transfer, I mean, a kind of blatant transfer of her own feelings. She's the one who's trying to make away with her husband. There's no sense that Arden behaves in this way. But what she does cynically is to deploy new ideologies of mutuality in marriage to slander her husband and gain sympathy for her own plans to murder him. So she uses the ideology of how husbands ought to behave to wives uh, as part of these mutual obligations uh, entirely cynically to, turn, uh, to, to, to get Green uh, on side to murder him. In place of the idealised emotional companionship of Protestant marriage, Arden of Faversham seems to substitute good, old-fashioned, humanist male friendship. Franklin commiserates with his friend, saying comfortingly, it is not strange that women will be false and wavering. It is not strange that women will be false and wavering, and instead takes Arden away for bachelor consolations in London. One of the play's only revivals in recent years at the Metropolitan Playhouse in New York in 2004 played up Arden and Franklin as an alternative couple to Alice and Mosby, stressing Arden's effeminacy and presenting Franklin as what one review called a muscled sidekick in lavender stockings who acts a bewildered Watson to Arden's fluttering Judy Garland. A bit too much going on in that sentence, but quite nice the, Lavender stockings are kind of nice. Franklin and Arden, though, never really do occupy the central emotional space left evacuated in the play by the failure of the Arden marriage 
and the nervous guilt of the relationship between Alice and Mosby. In fact, I think the play substitutes knockabout action for emotional exploration, shifting the emphasis onto the sequence of murder attempts rather than on the relationships which give rise to that central situation. The household and community are fractured and dysfunctional throughout the play. Individuals are linked by bonds of emotional and commercial debt and inequality rather than mutuality. I think the play dramatises lots and lots of unequal, emotionally and financially unequal relationships rather than this ideal of mutual ones. The consequences of this are most clearly seen in the play's climax, Arden's murder. Arden is in his counting house, with all its associations of commerce and hoarding, and also perhaps with some kind of a notion of spiritual accounting, setting up his sins on a kind of heavenly balance sheet as he prepares unwittingly for his death. Black Will and Shakebag are ready to ambush Arden as he and Mosby, the man certainly never learns, are playing backgammon together. Arden has fallen for another trap of Alice. She feigns banishing Mosby, but Arden, perhaps believing that two women, sorry, that two men sharing one woman can and should be friends, tells Mosby to stay. The two men play backgammon. Mosby gives the prearranged, the prearranged cue, now I can take you, and the assassins rush in. Mosby, Alice, and Shakebag all stab Arden, who expires quickly and without any final words. But then, and this is a real Coen Brothers moment actually, they are left with the reality of the body. It's an almost metatheatrical moment. In a theatre with no curtains, as in the early modern period, a dead body on stage is a real problem. It must either be carried off, hence the popularity of Death March final stage directions, uh, but that requires a certain number of people still to be alive in order to take off uh, the people who are supposed to be dead. And as we know, most many plays end with a majority of people dead rather than alive, so that's not really an option. What really has to happen is that at some point, the actor must say, the play's over now, and get to his feet and get himself off stage. But somehow, uh, somewhere in my mind, this is kind of what we're waiting for at the end of Arden of Faversham. Arden's body becomes more and more immovable as the household attempts to cover up the murder and to act naturally in front of Franklin and Arden's other guests. Uh, if you wanted an, a, a kind of analogue for Lady Macbeth's uh, banquet uh, in, in that play, I think it's probably the banquet here. And Macbeth is quite an interesting play to push the genre of domestic tragedy towards. Uh, if you're thinking about uh, if, if you're thinking technically about paper four, you can write up to half of one answer on Shakespeare in paper four. They attempt to move Arden's body from the counting house out into the fields, but a freak snowstorm leaves a clear trail of their footprints. Arden's murder now having been finally achieved, it seems that everything conspires to reveal it. The snow, Arden's own blood, which won't be removed from the floor, and eventually his corpse which, in accordance with popular belief, starts bleeding again at the sight of his murderers. Franklin finds the blood-stained knife and towel, and although Alice attempts to suggest the marks are the pig's blood from their supper, Franklin turns detective, 
discovering Arden's body behind the abbey, just in case we forgot that the Reformation is kind of important to this, Arden's body is behind the abbey. And Franklin also cunningly spots some rushes in Arden's slipper, suggesting he was actually murdered indoors and his body carried outside. Like a martyred saint or miraculous proto-Catholic manifestation, Arden's body bleeds to identify his killer. After the long build-up of murder attempts, the play is actually wrapped up very quickly. Alice and Mosby confess, as do Susan and Michael, and all are led off to execution. Gentlemen, says Franklin in epilogue, we hope you'll pardon this naked tragedy wherein no filed points are foisted in to make it gracious to the ear or eye. We hope you'll pardon this naked tragedy wherein no filed points are foisted in to make it gracious to the ear or eye. This is a true story, Franklin seems to assert. It's not something shaped for its dramatic qualities. But this, is, this can hardly be true, I think. Arden of Faversham is a shapely, dramatically arresting and tonally uncertain play, flip-flopping between salacious reportage and pious moralising, between stereotype and psychology, between local and national, in some exhilarating ways. I've tried to suggest on your handout some of the things you might try to do uh, with Arden alongside other reading. Do email me if you've got any questions. And I hope I might see you next week when, after a brace of tragedies, enough already, we're going to look at uh, what I think is probably late Elizabethan England's primary feel-good comedy, Thomas Decker's play, The Shoemaker's Holiday. I hope that will cheer you up for third week. Thank you.